Okay, so putting everything into context, uh, we've, we've just been going through the book of John, and we've now gone through chapters 13 to 17, which is the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And uh, we've, we've learned an enormous amount of things from John's perspective. As I've said countless times before and again, if the entire Bible had been written with this much um, clarity and, and detail, the Bible would be six times larger than it is. John took an enormous amount of time to detail the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And so now we find ourselves, last week we saw the, the Lord's Prayer in John 17. Jesus said, glorify the Son that he might glorify the Father. We saw amazing applications of that prayer and, and then <clears throat> what we're going to see today is that Jesus actually goes into another time of prayer, and we don't know what he prays, we just know that he does pray. And this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see in, in uh, Mark chapter 14, he prays earnestly, and while he's praying, uh, Peter, James, and John, the three disciples that are the closest to him, or the three apostles that are closest to him, Jesus brought them with him to pray, and they keep falling asleep, and they won't pray. <laughs> And, 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 the, and the Lord, as we see in the, the other accounts, that all four gospel accounts cover the arrest of Jesus and, and this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's almost like witnessing an accident a, on a, a four-street intersection. And uh, you're, there's people on each corner, and each one's going to have a different view as an eyewitness. And that's kind of the four gospels. Everyone has a different view of what took place. And you put it together, and you get an, an entire view of it. It's kind of like a blind man holding the tail of an elephant, the other blind man holding the trunk, someone working it, and they all figure it out together what the elephant is like. So this is what we're seeing. And in, in Mark chapter 14, we see the prayer, and we see the disciples sleeping, and, and Jesus saying, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me share more in context before I have a stand for the reading in John 18. Let me give you another perspective, another corner so to speak, or another portion of the elephant to view. This is in Luke 22. Um, It says, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them, drew near Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Now, John's not going to include that, but Luke does. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? John doesn't cover that. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. John does cover that. It's Peter. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. It's kind of nice that Peter only took off his ear. Could you imagine? It would be kind of cool if he took off his neck. And he's like, let me replace that. He's like, oh, it's backwards. Still kind of cool, though, a healing of an ear right there. Jesus said to the chief priests, the captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him in Luke, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me. But this is your hour. Remember, Jesus is talking about my hour has not yet come. This is the hour. He says, where he, he puts himself in the will of man. He says, your hour has come, and it's the power of darkness. And so all hell literally breaks loose. Uh, Judas, who is, who's been possessed, as the scripture says, by Satan himself, is leading this evil cohort. And, um, and all hell is descended upon the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and we find in um, the other account in, in Mark where um, the, the scripture, or no, excuse me, Matthew. Uh, in Matthew 26, it's covered. I'm only going to cover a brief portion in verses 52 and 53. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, talking to Peter. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Now, a Roman legion was 5,400 soldiers broken into 10 cohorts. A cohort had 540 men. Every 80 men had an officer. And, and so we're going to see in, in John 18 that a cohort comes down. That's, that's close to 600 men. Every 80 has an officer. So there is, there is a multitude coming down. It's at night uh, or in the early morning. And they're coming down with, with torches and lanterns and spears. And it's the Roman garrison, a cohort, close to 600 men. Here Jesus is saying, you know, I can summon 12 legions of angels, which would be close to 60,000 angels. And if you you look at 2 Kings chapter 19, I think it's verse 35, one angel wipes out 187,000 Assyrians. Could you imagine what 60,000 angels could do? So so this is is, um, a confrontation between the forces of heaven and the forces of darkness descending in this Garden of Gethsemane in the Brook Kidron. We'll be there in June 1st through the 16th. We'll, we'll go in that exact place. We'll see this. I know some folks that spend the night in the garden. Um, as I've taken many trips there, they leave the hotel room, they go and spend the night. It's in kind of a seedy part of town, but they still do it. 
And, uh, and, it, and it is, it's amazing to be in that location where all hell broke loose. And so with this perspective, one last thing I want to read to you, and then uh, we'll get into the study of the word. It's out of, um, uh, I had it here and I lost it. It's um, right here, John 10. Now, for those of you who are thinking Jesus is going to be apprehended, he's going to be arrested, he's a victim, um, he is, he's, he's unjustly being arrested. Let me share with you what Jesus says about it. John 10, verse 18, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own free will of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. Let me just share with all of you, nails didn't hold God to the cross. He willingly yielded himself to intercede on behalf of you and me. We're going to see him interceding on behalf of the disciples in John 18. So with that being said, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 1 of John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, and that was the prayer that we covered last week. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment, a cohort, remember, 540 men, a cohort of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. So there's well over 600 people. Uh, Chief priests, Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, "'Whom are you seeking?' This is interesting. Jesus walks forward, intercedes. The disciples are behind him. He sees this fiery serpent with torches and lanterns coming down the mountain, descending upon him. Over 600 uh, violent soldiers, well-trained in hand-to-hand combat, ready to wreak havoc upon this Galilean upstart. And as he approaches, Jesus steps out in confidence. He says, who are you seeking? I got him right here. And give it your best shot. And and they answered and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, fascinating, they, they didn't say oh, we're, we're seeking you, the one with the flowing blonde hair and the piercing blue eyes with the halo over his head. Isn't that interesting how we like to depict Christ in our own image? But the reality is we've been created in his image. And, and, and the picture that we have here is, this, Isaiah says there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. He was comely in his appearance. He was, he was common. You, you wouldn't even pick him out of this crowd. Some people like to depict him as muscular. Well, he was a, he was a carpenter's son. He probably had some good muscles. But his face was such that you just missed him in a crowd. He's just that common face. And in addition, you know, there was nothing in his appearance that would be drawn to him. It, quite frankly, he was probably a little ugly. Some of you struggle with that. Um, he says, uh, there, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, and if you notice in your scripture, there's three words that says, I am he. But he is italicized. It's angled. That word doesn't exist in, uh, in the original language. All that exists in the original language is ego, I, I, me, which means I am. So they, they said, they answered and said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus looked at them and said, I am. Now, if you wonder about that, that's the same phrase that God used to tell Moses, who I am. I am self-existent. I've always been. I always will be. I am. Well, at the statement of I am, Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. And now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Um, uh, piteo is, is, is the Greek word, which means they were thrown violently to their faces in prostrate position. Lanterns breaking, torches catching fire, uh, uh, armor clanging, swords clashing, face down on the ground when he said, I am. Now, that would stumble a lot of people. It would kind of set the mood a little bit, I'd assume. When they gained some sort of composure and they got back in their ranks and reassembled themselves. Uh, verse seven, Jesus asked them again, said, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. They don't add the stuttering in there. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Speaking of the disciples that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. And this was in the earlier chapter in John 17, 12. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. 
Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Now we find in Luke that he obviously healed it. Luke's a doctor. He was intrigued by that. He picked an ear off the ground, put it back on. Ha! A lot of stuff going on here. Let's pray and take a look at it. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Moved by the two words, ego I me, I am. Lord, it seems as though you weren't in control, but you were in control the entire time. And the man with the weapon and with the fleshly carnal plan was not in control. And he was actually getting in the way of what you desired to do. God, we're here today and we ask that you'd speak to us. You'd lead us into all truth and you'd speak to our hearts in relation to this text. God, we feel as though that fiery serpent is descending upon our lives, oppressing us, overwhelming us. And, and our desires to operate in the flesh when you have called us to stay awake and intercede in the spirit and to pray. And Lord, I ask today by your spirit that you would minister to us, not by condemnation, Lord, that's not of you, for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but Lord, through conviction, that our hearts would be moved, that we would press in and apply this gift you've given us of prayer. And so Lord, we commit all this into your hands and ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sit down, relax. Jesus wasn't a victim of an angry mob. He was in complete control the entire time. When we see in John 18 this picture that Jesus crosses over the brook Kidron, this is where all the sacrifice and the blood of the sacrifice would go through that. They, it was a very dark place. And Jesus crosses the brook Kidron and comes into this garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. and there, There's the pressing, I mean, there's a crushing of, of Christ. Oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit and this crushing brings out the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit aligns us. It lifts up the name of Christ that all men would be drawn unto him. He's entering into this garden, this, this place of pressing. And, and we find in, in um, Mark 14 what occurred before Jesus, you know, was greeted, strangely enough, by his betrayer, Judas. Uh, John doesn't cover this, but it's important we cover it. This morning, Mark points out something very critical that can't be missed. Can't be missed. Mark points out, he says, Then they came to the place which was named Gethsemane. Mark 14, if you're taking note. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now let that echo in your heart. There's a drought of prayer in the body of Christ. We don't understand it. We don't apply it. He took Peter, James and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. I think that can describe any of us in the room troubled and deeply distressed at any time over any issue. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba. Abba means Papa. He said, Papa, all these things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, he prays this three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. For those of you who think you, can only, you only need to pray once for something, and if you pray more than once, it's a sin. It's not. Prayer aligns us with God's will. Sometimes we have to repeat a prayer for our own sake, not for God's. And it's not sinful. God knows that we need to be realigned. And if Jesus prays more than once for some issue, I think it's okay. Amen? And so he prays, and he asks that this cup be taken away from him. You know what the cup was? The cup was, let's just manifest the sins in the room. Every evil thought, the actions you've ever done, the things you've thought to do, the things you've never spoken of. For the entirety of your life and what's remaining, all falls upon Christ. Now take that and magnify it through the entire population from the beginning of time to the end of time. All mankind, all sins leveled upon the Lord in the heaviness, the darkness surrounding him, the condemnation. All of this is, is, 
is descending upon the Lord. He knows what's about to happen. He knows what awaits him, the Via Dolorosa. He knows all things. He knows the beating he's going to endure. He knows the, the sins that will be leveled upon him. He knows the, the, the father uh, usaging our guilt by, by crushing the son. He knows that he's going to be the lamb slaughtered for the sins of the world. He knows all of this, and he's in this garden with the heaviness of it. The other scripture said he, that he sweats over drops of blood. It's a medical condition where the capillaries burst through stress and mixes with the sweat and the blood, and you, it, it, it's perceived upon the face through great angst and anxiety. I, I can't recall the medical terminology, but it does exist. And he's saying, God, can you, is there any other way to do this, Father? Papa, is there any other way to do this? I, I've shared with you the story about my daughter when she cut her head and and she had needed stitches, and I'm holding her head because I couldn't put the strap on her head, so I had to hold her head while the doctor sewed her up. And she's screaming, and she's screaming, and she's screaming, and, and she tr- tries to calm herself, and she looks at me, and she says, Daddy, Daddy. And she's trying to calm herself, you know, just to get my attention. Daddy, Daddy, look at me. I look at her, and she says, Daddy, how can you let them do this to me? She was three years old. Now, if there's any other way, I would have done it, but there wasn't. I love my daughter. I didn't, I, I, it crushed me. And, and he's saying, Papa, if there's any other way, but not my will, thy will be done, I trust you. And then it came and he found them sleeping in verse 37. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? And it's, it's interesting he picked out Peter because he, Peter said earlier, I'll die for you. I'll even go to prison for you. And, and Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you're gonna die me three times. He says, these guys will forsake you. I won't, Lord. And here he is sound asleep, and he points out Peter, not to make an issue of him, but to give an illustration for Peter to learn something from this that Peter would learn later in life. He says in verse 38, Peter, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. All of us want to do what is right. The apostle Paul even said, those things I want to do, those I don't do. Those things I don't want to do, those I do. We're, the, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I want to do the right thing. Does anyone have this problem? You want to do the right thing, but you don't? Anybody? Is it just me? Come on, more. Amen. Tom, bless you. I see your hand. Yes. And he's saying, Peter, it's not enough to want to do what's right. It's not enough to want to do the right thing. It's important that you do the right thing the right way. And and the only way that you can do the right thing the right way is to ask me how to do it. Ask the Father. If any man lacks wisdom, all he need to do is ask of God. Peter's sleeping when he should be praying. All hell is descending upon the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter's sound asleep. And Jesus is saying, you need to watch and pray. This is critical right now. I've awoken you. I I have instructed you. I've I've prodded you. I've convicted you. I I want you to pray with me for your sake. I'm, I'm already tuned in. You need to be tuned in, Peter. Verse 39, again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same word. So he's praying the same thing again. And when he returned, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Not, not in criticism or anything like that. He just says, it's enough. There's no more time left, fellas. It's enough. He says, the hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being um, somewhere in the text. Oh, Uh, Anyone want to pick it up where I left off? Betrayed, go ahead, louder. Betrayed into the hands of sinners. And at this moment, it's overwhelming for the Lord, and it's overwhelming for Peter. And he says, here he comes now, my betrayer, is how the text. So at that moment, when Jesus has been praying all night, at that moment, he looks up and he hears the clanging of, of the armament of the 600 Roman soldiers in the cohort descending, as I've heard um, Ken Graves describe, this fiery serpent winding its way down the hill to descend upon the Garden of Gethsemane with, with lanterns and torches and spears, oh my, coming down. And, and right then, Jesus says, they approach. And at that moment, we hear the other accounts that Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss, but we're gonna pick up in this portion, looking at what John sees. Judas knew that Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. They probably checked the upper room. They didn't find anyone there. And now, with all these soldiers and under this authority, and Judas himself being possessed by Satan himself, this is a demonic serpent of, uh, of evil, armed to the, to the tilt, coming down. And as they're coming down, Judas betrays him. 
And, and, and as he approaches him and he enters into the presence, Jesus is in a place common to where Judas had witnessed Jesus praying and teaching him. And Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers as cohort, and also the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with their lanterns, torches, and weapons. They had their own troops. And Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? Now, as he steps forward and he says, whom are you seeking? He deals with it. He's not cowarding behind a mask at night. His ministry is open and public. He's not afraid. God hasn't given him a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. I say that because some of you saw in the newspaper the article about Planned Parenthood and then the letter to the editor that somehow I'm responsible for this coward, and I call them a coward, man or woman, whoever they are, they're a coward because Jesus doesn't operate that way. And at night in a mask, slipping through the darkness to throw an incendiary device into Planned Parenthood and to light it on fire. And somehow because I'm pro-life and I'm calling for the defunding of Planned Parenthood, I, I have now been earmarked as being responsible for that. I don't find it fair. I find it unjust. I find it divisive in our community. I find it volatile. And fascinatingly enough, the room is divided. There, there are folks in this room right now. You know, when Jesus stands in front and says, who are you looking for? I would ask you the same thing. Why are you here and who are you looking for? And the response is going to be Jesus of Nazareth. So I'm going to ask you, why are you looking for him? Oftentimes, I'll see articles and people comment about sermons and they've attended our church, not for the sake of growing in the Lord, but to pick certain things out of context to describe us inappropriately for selfish and odd reasons. They're not here to grow in Christ. They're not here to be a part of the fellowship. They're here to detract and divide and attack. I would say, Jesus of Nazareth, if you're seeking him, why do you seek him? Do you seek to betray him, fight against him, or do you seek to embrace him? And when they say Jesus of Nazareth and the room is divided, there are many of you here who have come to know the Lord in a greater way. And when the Lord says to you, I am, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Tzedekinu, it means I will be for you whatever you need when you need it. I am self-existent, totality, I am. You know that. Because whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through, whatever the fiery serpent that's descending upon your life and crushing you as it were in the, in the olive press of the Garden of Gethsemane, God is here. And in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the confusion, and it is confusion when you go through struggle, it doesn't make any sense. Peter, James, and John and the other apostles are looking and saying, everything we've worked for, they're descending, they're going to kill us, they're going to imprison us, it's all going to be over. Jesus steps out in the midst of them, not as a coward, not with a mask, but in open of all of them and says, who are you seeking? And you know what he's doing is he's, he's putting himself between him, the, 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 the demonic mob, and his disciples. He's interceding. The Bible says that Christ ever lives at the right hand of the Father. He lives at the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you and me. He, he, is, he is protecting us from the demonic serpent that comes to seek, kill, and destroy. And as he intercedes and he stands there and he says, I am, this, this pipto which throws them to their faces and prostrate and stuns them and, and, and absolutely causes chaos and they drop their lanterns and their torches and their swords and they're trying to assemble themselves and bring some decorum of their ranks and their order. This, this fiery serpent mob, uh, demonic, now returns and, and gains some sort of assemblance and Jesus looks at them again as they're getting up from their feet, putting out the fires that their torches have lit in this garden and he says to them, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he says, I told you I am. Now, when he says, I am, this revelation is this idea that he's describing himself to the world. But the beautiful thing is, he's always looking out for you and me. He's standing in the presence of this, this demonic serpent to defend his disciples and protect them. He's putting the focus on him as he did upon the cross and all the world's sins were put upon him. 
He's taking your sin and mine and all of our iniquities and he's bearing the burden and he's taking the, the chastisement of our sin. And in the darkest hour, he's protecting his disciples. In a time where all hell is breaking loose and he's been up all night and he's, he's exhausted and he hasn't slept a wink. You know, it's one thing to intercede for somebody and say, let me give you my seat on the train after you've had a long night's sleep and your back doesn't hurt and your feet don't ache and, and you see this person older than you and frail and struggling and you get up to give them your seat. It's another to have had a miserable day, absolutely in pain, hurting in every nook and cranny and then to extend that grace to another person that may not even look as bad or feel as bad as you are. This is Jesus in the midst of the heartache and, and, and if there was ever found a time that was an opportunity where we wouldn't have any issue with it for him to apply a little bit of unselfishness, I would say this would be it. But he doesn't. In the most extreme of circumstances, as we can see in the text, if there's ever a time to justify a little selfishness, Jesus doesn't. He stands. He's a good shepherd. And he is a good shepherd. He puts our welfare above his own. And he took every blow on our behalf. As he intercedes, he looks at these men and he asks them again, whom are you seeking? This is a call to repentance. Repentance means change. Their lives had been floored. They'd been put to their faces unwillingly by the, the, the words that would echo in all eternity by the God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand saying, I am. Boom. The might of the Roman army is put to their faces. And people say, if God would show me his power, I would repent. If God would show me his strength, I would serve him. Some would respond that way in repentance, but not all. The demonstration of God's power doesn't always lead to repentance of mankind. Show me a sign. We would as soon dismiss that sign with some sort of silly explanation than to yield to a living God. You see, repentance is a choice made in the heart by every individual. And fascinatingly enough, Jesus didn't hate the soldiers that came to kill him or enslave him or imprison him. Some would probably be in the same garrison at the foot of the cross. It would say, this is a righteous man and that, and that centurion would come to Christ. It could have been the same group of men that were here on that night. Don't say I would serve God if he would show himself real to me. That, that doesn't work. He's shown you himself a thousand times when he keeps your heart beating and your lungs moving as you sleep at night. Accept the facts that are already before you. Turn to him and serve him. This is what God calls you to. He says, I am. I will be for you whatever you need. I'm your sustainer. I am your creator. I am your deliverer. But Jesus submits himself to the arrest of, of these troops. And the reason why he submits himself to the arrest is so that he can gain the freedom for his disciples. He submitted himself to the cross to set you and me free. He took our penalty so that we wouldn't have to be imprisoned, that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. I find this even more remarkable considering Peter's response, that Jesus would intercede on behalf of his disciples and Peter's immediate response and, and the behavior of Peter is the antithesis of what Christ desires. Peter pulls his sword out and, and, and he, he takes off the ear of Malchus. Malchus isn't just a servant. He's a servant of the high priest. He's not just a servant of the high priest. He's the servant of the high priest. He is probably next to Judas. He is probably leading this demonic cohort. He's probably right there in the front. Peter's thinking, I could take out Judas, but I, I, I'm still not sure that he, he could be the one betraying the Lord. I'm going for that guy. And I got news for you. The, the church should never hold the sword. In history, whenever the church has had the sword, we have screwed up the world. I'm not speaking of a theocracy. God has given us a republic where we can influence the sword but not hold it. Ours is one where we move to the heart of mankind. And Peter takes this sword and he reaches out and he cuts off the ear of Malchus. And I just got to tell you, when the church has the sword, they stink at wielding it. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight. I hope you haven't. Uh, the, the secret is you want to get that first shot in so the person doesn't get up. You want to hit them so hard, their whole family feels it. And if they get back up, you have better already be running. Have tennis shoes on and on your way out. Somebody's been there before. And, he, and, and 
who cuts off somebody's ear? I mean, you just see Peter. I was going for his neck, but I hit his ear. Darn it! And he's probably trying to get his in the gun. Oh, zipper, you know, I'm in trouble. And you can just see every one of these Romans. I don't know what happened. Judas made me. You know, whatever. And Jesus over there going, Peter. And, and the, the ear just. And Luke pick, describes it. Jesus picks it up. Big old chunk of an ear. And he, he comes up to Malchus. Malchus and everyone else is like, don't touch the guy. I mean, he says his name and we faint. And he comes up, and, and you can just see Malchus shaking as Jesus takes that ear and just goes. It's back. And here's the problem. Peter was trying to help Jesus, and that's the church. We want to help Jesus. We are going to muster our forces and our weaponry, and we are going to show this world how we can get it done. Have you ever tried to help Jesus, but in the wrong way? I'm going to help Jesus. And he even has to correct Peter. Peter is moving not in the spirit, but in the flesh. And you know why? He didn't pray the night before. Jesus prayed the whole night. He doesn't even have a sword. He just speaks, I am, and he dominates him. He goes on to describe, I can have 12 legions of God's angels. That's 60,000 angels. One wiped out 187,000 Assyrians. They just burp and you're dead. I would say this. Peter's intentions were right. His actions were wholly and completely wrong. And to the coward, and I say coward, that lit the Planned Parenthood on fire, you are not doing Jesus any favors. You see, have you ever tried to cut off a sinner's ear? Some of you go, what are you talking about? You nag them so much they can't hear you anymore? You just chew their ear off with your endless yapping? Turn or burn, fly or fry. If you don't get right, you'll get left. And you, you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And, you, and let me walk you through the four spiritual laws. And, and you're on your break, and you're like, I just want to eat my sandwich. And they're going, and they don't give you time to talk. They don't care who you are. It's like they're just shooting. And the only time you can speak is when they're changing clips. And you're like, I really got to go. Okay. I remember the first time somebody wanted to pray with me to receive the Lord. It was a guy at Tulane University. And he's just going on and on and on and on. I didn't want to receive the Lord. I didn't want anything to do with it. I just knew that if I didn't, this guy wouldn't leave me alone. Some of you find that insulting. I'm being honest. I'm like, he's gnawing off my ear. He might as well just use a sword. I can't hear you. It's like, <laughs> clanging cymbals, sounding brass. Why? No love. I'm just an object for you to get a notch on your belt to, to move on with your evangelism deal. God didn't say to, he said to, to make disciples. Discipleship means investing in lives and spending time. You don't even know my name, mister. You don't know anything about me. You don't know anything about my family. You just won't shut up. I would say to you, you have the right intention, but the wrong action. God breaks your heart for people. He causes you to intercede. You approach somebody in, in the same way that Peter did. It's actually harder for them to hear you. It's harder for them to hear the gospel than, than before they, the encount, they encountered you. It's like, if that's what Christians are, I don't want anything to do with it. Peter did the, the right thing the wrong way. And you know how you do the right thing the wrong way? Don't spend time in prayer. This fiery serpent is descending upon the Son of God. The Son of God. You think if there's anyone who didn't need to pray, it'd be the Son of God. But he spent the whole night in prayer. There is a drought of prayer in the body of Christ. I don't want to hear another plan from anybody about how you plan to save this country. I don't want to hear any ministry that you want to perform or any outreach that you want to design until I see you at prayer. You may have great intentions in doing 
the right thing, but you're doing it the wrong way because you're not seeking the Lord in prayer. Corporate prayer. Our hearts are knitted and aligned with his purposes. You see, you learn some things from Peter in relation to this, why he made such a mistake. The first thing is he lacked spiritual preparation. Peter cut off Malchus's ear. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. He had no idea what God wanted to do. He didn't realize that God the Father had orchestrated this descending demonic serpent upon his son for the redemption of mankind and, and, and for the salvation of the world. And in the midst of the trial and the pain and the heartache that was completely confusing, God the Father was using it for his glory. Even the Son himself in the angst, sweating as though it were drops of blood, aligned with the will of the Father through relentless prayer, could see it. And all we can do in the midst of our struggle is complain instead of saying, why God? Our heart is to say, what? What is your will and your purpose in the midst of this? This fiery serpent de- descends, but what is it, God, you want to do? It's certainly not to cut off the ear of the high servants or the high priest's servant. It's not to wreak havoc in our community with violence. It's to yield to the will of the Father. The other fault that Peter had is he relied on carnal weapons to win a spiritual battle. Paul says very clearly. In 2 Corinthians 10, for we walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty for God, in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. We are so quick to come up with a solution of what this nation needs or this world needs or our community needs, and we have never spent one moment in prayer Not one. You have all kinds of ideas for your wayward children or your struggling relationship or your your addiction or whatever it is. And yet, I have to beg people to come to prayer. If I gave you all $100 every time you came, would that do it? Do we really believe that we're going to leave this nation better than we received it for our children? And I know the resounding statement in this room is no. My question then would be, why are we not praying? What solution do you have? Do you, do you fancy that, that the kingdom of God is going to arrive on Air Force One? No. No, Republicans are not going to save the country. Neither are Democrats or Independents or Donald Trump. It's not going to happen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray turn from their wicked ways and seek my face. Then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Then, what will it take? A descending serpent upon the garden of Gethsemane to crush everything we hold dear? How long will we, will we not labor in prayer? How long will we slumber and not engage in these heavenly forces to descend and, and break down demonic strongholds of, of the heroin in our community? Why must we slumber? Why must we sleep? Why must we neglect so great a gift as prayer? Why is it so hard that there's a drought on the body of Christ in prayer? Why is it every church you offer a prayer meeting, it's like pulling teeth? That's not condemnation. I pray it's conviction. And if you don't come, God doesn't condemn you. You just miss out on an opportunity to to be aligned with what he's doing and why he's doing it. And then finally, Peter was looking at the secondary cause rather than seeking the situation as Jesus saw it. We always get consumed with the secondary causes. This world's going to hell in a handbag. Abortion is rampant. We got transgender bathroom bills. The speaker of the house is just resigned. There's all kinds of speculation. I don't know what And you're looking at all the secondary causes. We have got to align. We've got to get some boycotts arranged. We've we got to get the churches unified. We've got to get the voting block established. All approaching secondary causes. If there's no prayer, you are wasting your time. Period. Can you imagine what hell will break loose in this little fellowship if the person that sent that incendiary device into Planned Parenthood ever stepped foot in this church 
at any time in the past. Do you know what a, what a, a spectacle that will be? And this church will be whittled down to a manageable size. And we'll be the laughing stock of the community. How do you deal with that? With some sort of PR? I found myself burdened and pressed to prayer for two days after I saw that article. There's no way, there's no way we will be able to overcome this fiery serpent unless we spend time in the presence of God in prayer, corporately, asking for wisdom. Peter saw the mob as the problem, so he attacked it. Jesus looked beyond the secondary causes and he linked up with the Father's will. And if we're not careful, we will be expending all of our energy dealing with the secondary causes. We'll exhaust ourselves. We'll burn out the body of Christ. It's a tiresome thing to deal with secondary causes because the problem seldom gets solved that way. And we just keep hitting a wall, hitting a wall, hitting a wall. We're vigorously hacking away at something and getting unsatisfactory results. We've tried every gimmick, but we haven't tried prayer. I love what one author says. I'm almost finished. If, if what you're doing is not working, then pray as Jesus prayed until you can see what God is doing and how he wants you to respond. He didn't want to take away the serpent. He didn't want to take away the cohort. He wanted to be glorified in the midst of it. And by the way, the last miracle that Jesus ever performed before the crucifixion was putting back on Malchus's ear. And we're so busy doing the right thing the wrong way that all we're doing is making the world deaf to the, to the call of Christ. Jesus wasn't a victim of an angry mob. He was in total control of the situation. Three things that Peter lacked in crisis I shared with you, but the three things that Jesus possessed in the crisis, and I love this because Pastor Brett gave it to me. He prayed up and he embodied spiritual preparation. Two, Jesus controlled the crisis instead of the crisis controlling him. Three, he focused on others all the way to the cross and, and beyond even to today. Our response is we want to get angry and we want to fight back. James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm, I'm out of time, but with your permission, which I'm not going to wait for it. <laughs> I want to read to you one of the most compelling items in American history, and I pray that you leave with this and it touches your heart. One of the greatest characters of American history that has touched my life deeply, who many believe came to Christ while he was in office. He never had formal membership to a church. He never was baptized. Elizabeth Keckley would testify that every time she'd look over his shoulder, he was reading the Bible. It was a man that in his early stages of his life was an atheist and well-known in Springfield, Illinois as an atheist, but came to Christ, lost two sons. His wife went insane. He got a bullet to the back of his head. It was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had won election through the help of a man named Horace Greeley, a newspaper editor who had published the Lincoln-Douglas debates up and down the eastern seaboard. Lincoln ended up winning through this upstart uh, party called the Republican Party that had formed in 1854. Now, as he's president of the United States and war has continued on for over four years and every state has experienced the, the, the bloodied aspects and the massacre of their families and friends, fathers, sons, Horace Greeley turned on Abraham Lincoln once being an ally was now an enemy and he wrote in July 7th of 1864 in his newspaper, he said, our bleeding, bankrupt, almost dying country longs for peace and shudders at the, at the prospect of fresh conscriptions, of further wholesale devastations and new rivers of human blood. Lincoln is looking at wanting to bring the union together and he's seeing Horace Greeley turn against him and nobody wants any more war and for four years are sick of it. 650,000 people have died in a nation of 33 million astronomical. And Lincoln wrote in his journal in 1864, he knew he wasn't going to win re-election. Uh, McClellan was the Democrat and he was favored to win by overwhelming odds. He, Lincoln knew he wasn't going to win. He turned to Frederick Douglass, uh, the first black man to be entertained in the White House, not as a servant, but as a, a, a human being. And he said to Frederick, Frederick Douglass, I need you to get south of the Mason-Dixon line and tell every black man and woman to get north of the Mason-Dixon line because when McClellan gets in, he's going to seal the border and only those in the north will be free. Go tell him. 
And Lincoln wrote in his diary in August of 1864, he said, exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. Nobody expected him to be reelected. But Lincoln pressed on, pressed on, pressed on. And something happened on September 3rd of 1864. Sherman made it down to Atlanta. And all of a sudden, the tide of the war changed. And Lincoln was reelected by overwhelming numbers. And on March 4th, as he stands up in the dais in his second inaugural address for his second term of office, it had been raining for three days straight. Not, uh, not, uh, uh, the sun hadn't shone for three days. There was eight, eight to 15 inches of mud throughout all of Washington. Every woman's coat was covered in mud. But the city was uh, ablaze with excitement over the second inauguration of, of Abraham Lincoln. Over 60,000 African-Americans had gathered, the largest gathering of free African-Americans in the history of the United States to welcome this new president's second term of office. And, and one reporter writes on March 4th, there, hadn't, there, there had been endless rain, and at the moment he stepped up to the dais for a second inaugural address, and, and this is testified by a number of newspapers, it says, at that moment the sun which had been obscured all day burst forth in its unclouded meridian splendor and flooded the spectacle with, with glory and light. The heavens opened up and shined right down on Lincoln. The place was amazed. And he steps forward and he gives what is one of the shortest inaugurations in the history of the United States, 703 words. 505 of those words were single syllable. 24 sentences, four paragraphs long. It took it was actually 25 sentences, four paragraphs long. It took him seven minutes to read it. The first paragraph of the four is he just simply says, there's no need for long addresses. And everybody giggles. And then in the second paragraph, he describes the conflict itself. He says there's two nations. One of them would make war rather than let the nation survive. And the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And then he uses four words to signal his thesis of his inaugural address. He says this. And the war came. He said earlier, neither north nor south wanted it to, but it came anyway. He said, events take on a life of their own and human intention does not rule all. And the war came despite our will. He had said to the South in his first inaugural address, into your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen and not in mine is the momentous issue of civil war. But now he realized it was something totally different. He was aligned now by prayer with the father. They said he prayed relentlessly. He was a man of deep prayer. He wrote elsewhere, he said, I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that the events have controlled me. He said, I I felt overwhelmingly that I had nowhere else to go but to my knees. He would write this in his journal. In the third paragraph of his second inaugural address, he reminded his audience of the specter of slavery that hovered over the land four years before. And then came the moral case that had long burned in Lincoln's mind. And this is what stunned the audience, and it's going to upset you. He said, though both North and South were rooted in the Christian faith, both read the same Bible and prayed to the same God, it was hard for a righteous man to understand how anyone could ask God to help him profit from another man's enslavement. The theme of his next sentence was in the heat of the message, or the heart of the message, and this is what he wrote. The Almighty has his own purposes. The, the audience was stunned. Historians record this. They're saying, wait a minute. They, they were stunned. They were almost refusing to believe that they'd heard correctly what he had just said, that the Almighty has his own purposes. Lincoln had come close to prosecuting the South. They're responsible. Cut their ears off. Cut their necks off. Run them into the ground. And he came close to prosecuting the South, but now he turns and instead he prosecutes the nation. The church is guilty. We don't pray. We pull out the sword. And he said, instead, God gave the war. Yes, God, and he did so as payment for sin, the sin of American slavery. And isn't this just what we know of God's justice and righteous judgments? He wrote in in the inaugural address, powerful words. He said, if God wills. He says, if God wills that this war continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln wrote, we must leave these matters to God. He is Lord, we are not. His will be done. We can only do what is in our power to do with malice toward none, 
With charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us the right to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, and to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And then that night, finally that night, in the reception lines as people were sneering at him that he had the audacity to blame the nation for this war. He said, men are not flattered by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them. Forty days later, he'd have a bullet to the back of his head. The war would be over, and the pulpits in America, you know how they would recognize this great president? They would find it disgusting that the president of the United States would dare to be in a theater on Good Friday. He was more of a Christian than any man in the pulpits in America. This is a spiritual battle that requires us to be on our knees. And when will we get that? That's our only hope. If you can't make it tonight, join with us from your home, but by all means, pray. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, the only way you endured that hell was because you had spent time in the presence of the Father. And Lord, we like Peter, we attempt every effort in the flesh to avail to nothing but deafening the world in which we're called to reach. Lord Jesus, heal their ears and cause us to fall to our knees that we would be men and women of prayer. Not talk about it, not acknowledge the need for it, but practice it. Help us, God. The disciples even struggled as we do. They ask you twice to teach them how to pray. God, help us, please. In Jesus' name, amen.